Well, good morning. Uh, Go ahead, if you have a Bible, and turn to Colossians 1. My name is Matt. I'm pastor for teaching and equipping here at Anthem, and it's good to be with you. We are uh, finishing up this week a short topical series. We usually preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, uh, but we've done a short topical series in the spring since Easter where we're focusing on the church. What is the church? And specifically, why is she worth it? Why is the church worth committing our lives to, giving our lives, investing in? And this week we're landing uh, for the final one at the topic of church membership, church membership. Some of you are like, wow, that sounds like a thrilling topic, right? Uh, And I've never, I don't think I've ever heard a a sermon on church membership. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on church membership. And and really the, the question is with church membership, it means why join? Like why become a part of a local church? Like we actually sign on the line and say, this is my church. I'm a member of this specific church. I identify with this local church. And there are many reasons why I could, as I was thinking through what to focus on, why would, would, would it be important to become a church member? There are lots of things we could talk about. Uh, One of them would just be because in the Bible we see in the New Testament that they clearly can account for who is in and who is out of of the local church. They can tell these people went out from us. These people were a part of us. They have some system where they can tell someone is identifying with this church and now they no longer are or they still are. And so one, you just see that in the Bible. It's, It's just normative. But then also... You could give reasons like practical reasons, like so you can vote on decisions, right? If you become a member, then you can vote on things like the budget and church leadership and things like that. And you have say and decision making, because if you're, you're kind of, you become an owner of the church and you invest in the church and become a part of the church and say, this is my home, then you have the ability to help with decision making. Or we could say that it's just one of those steps that you have to take to become a leader, Right? That there's also accountability. With Last week we looked at church leadership and the need to have that accountability in our lives. And so we need that accountability, accountability Hebrews 13 says. All these are good reasons. They're, they're all reasons, valid reasons why I could have to become church members. Why church membership is worth it. But I think there's one in our day that is underneath all of them that's even more important. One that in our day is something that I think in the church we're, we're losing something. Something that is absolutely vital to our walk with the Lord. If you want to know God, church membership is really important. Let me give you a scenario or a a story to kind of step into this. When uh, I was just talking to our connection group, midweek groups that we have here at Anthem, uh, where we meet and do life with one another and whatnot. And we were talking about the state of the church in America today, and we started talking about a, um, something that I like to share with young guys who will come to me who are thinking about going into ministry. Hey, I want to become a pastor. Can we have coffee and talk about it? And I always share them this scenario, and I challenge them with it. When, imagine in about 10 years, maybe five years, that you're, uh, you have someone who comes to you, and they say, Pastor, why should I come to your church? Why should I be a part of your church? Because here's the thing. What I'm able to do now with technology is I'm able to, you know, at that point, it'll be like, I don't know, some embedded chip in our brain or some like lens that we just put on our eyes like contact lenses. But I'm able to sit in my bed in the morning and I'm able to kind of go to whatever church. So fill in whatever is your favorite preacher, your favorite teacher, your favorite worship. Uh, perhaps by that point, the favorite teacher and then this church with the great worship, they put them together and they become like the Walmart of churches, right? 
And so you can now go and just lay in bed or sit at your breakfast table while you're eating breakfast and drinking coffee, and you don't have to go anywhere. And, and you can just go into the church service. But the thing is, maybe then we have like these, what are they called, hepiostatic suits or hepiostatic, where it's like you, it feels like you're there. And so you also, you walk in the front door and people greet you there. And, and so while you're in your living room here in, in Como, at the same time you're in a church in Texas and in a church in New York City and Chicago, wherever it is, whatever is your cup of tea. And you enter through the doors and people greet you. Everyone's got normal human avatars, right? There's nothing weird going on with that. So let's just eliminate that one, all right? Mickey Mouse at the door. Uh, but you go in and then you can worship. And, and, and the music is amazing. You can worship next to people in the pews or the, the seats, whichever your conscience permits, right? And then the preacher gets up and he gives a great sermon. He's your favorite preacher, and then afterwards, you're able to maybe go in the lobby and talk to people. And afterwards, at some point, though, you take off the lenses, you turn it off, and you're able to go about your day. The question, when that's available, why should they attend or become a member of your church? And usually what I get in response is just complete overwhelm and defeat because they go, that is the coming reality. I think the reason why church membership and why, why that scenario is so hard to wrestle with. Go, yeah, pastor, actually, why should I? Some of you right now are thinking, is that an option? <laughs> I just started a new company. Let me, uh, we struggle with how to respond to that because I think there's something at the core of it that we're missing in the church today. I think we've begun to think that church is really nothing more than kind of like this product or this add-on to my spiritual journey. That what it's about in my spiritual journey is just me kind of navigating through life to, to kind of find and ascend to God and, and kind of discover my true self. And along the way, I have these church experiences and kind of people along, uh, along the journey that come into my life. And they're just kind of, but they're really just kind of decorative. And, and they're all part of just getting me to wherever I'm headed. See, what's at the core of it that we're missing that's built into the church and the nature of the church that as modern people will see is now no longer baked into the reality that we share is commitment. Commitment. Another word for membership. That we're called to commit to specifically a people and a place. That we're called to a certain reality that God has placed us in for the purposes, as Scripture says, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And God uses a specific people in a specific place, but it takes commitment. What we're going to see is the way to find, to actually find our true selves, is actually through church membership and the commitment to a local church. As I dug into this, I'm really actually kind of excited because I feel like we get to tear apart a lot of modern ideas. And so what we're going to look at is first the two contexts of commitment, why and how we avoid commitment, and the secret to finding your true self. Uh, I'm going to read the text and let's pray. Now, here's the thing with the text. It's going to go really fast, okay? So it's going to go really fast, so pay attention. The text is Colossians 1, 1, 1, and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
Lord, that you have placed us within a specific people at a specific place. Lord, you've placed us in these realities so that we would know you, so we'd be refined, so we'd be shaped. So, Lord, we'd be conformed to the image of your Son. And so, Lord, this morning, as we think about church membership, Lord, that we wouldn't think of it as such a a small thing, but, Lord, we would see it as a profoundly shaping thing. And so, Lord, this morning, would you move and in the, our, the midst of us, and Lord, those who are maybe literally signed on the dotted line, members, what does it look like to go further into that commitment, to be more intentional with that commitment? Or Lord, if we're just wondering because we've never even thought about church membership, Lord, why would I really need that? Lord, help to show in clarity why we need to commit to a local church. Or we ask that you do this work by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, one of the things with the intro to this letter is it's kind of like flyover country. So I moved last year, about a year and a half ago from Southern California. And one of the, I'm from Ohio though, so don't worry, I'm one of y'all. Okay, so, but when, when, one thing in California was they're like, you go back to Ohio and they're like, oh, that's flyover country, right? Like it's one of those things you just kind of fly over on the way to somewhere, right? And, and oftentimes when we read the scriptural text, we tend to assume things like the intros and the endings are just kind of flyover country, biblically. Like you just kind of fly over them, you just kind of move through them to get to the real stuff, right, of the text. But actually what we know is that every word of the word of God is God's word. And so Paul is saying, this isn't kind of like some dear Johnny kind of like throwaway opening, but it has something to say here. And what Paul is doing here is he's laying a very basic foundation to life for his life. And he says, our lives exist. He says, his life exists. Our life exists as by the will of God, by the will of God. Paul says, my life exists by God's will to be an apostle. And to serve the local churches. And your life exists in order to know Jesus Christ. That's God's will for you. God has a specific will for your life. The question is, what is that will? Many of you are like, oh, pastor, I've been asking that question for years. What is God's will for my life? God's will for your life is that you be conformed to the image of Christ. This is what it says, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, that's the purpose of God. You be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What Paul's saying there is he wants the whole purpose in your life, what he's doing in your life. As 1 Thessalonians, Paul also says there, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, your sanctification. When it talks about the will of God, Paul talks about us becoming like Jesus, our lives looking like Jesus, us knowing the life that Jesus had, knowing and loving and obeying God, and not obeying when it just be some like cumbersome thing, but obeying would actually, in other words, be enjoying God. He says there is a life that you can have in Jesus, and the purpose of this life now is that you would be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, and you would know him. That is God's ultimate will for you. Now, the question is, how does God do that? How does God do that? Throughout Scripture, we see two primary ingredients. I've already said them today. A people and a place. You see this in places like Acts 17. It's all over the place. Acts 17 says this. The Lord, this is Paul again. He's giving a speech. 
who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we move, live and move and have our being. See, what is Paul saying here? He's saying something here that was true throughout all of scripture. Something that's almost so obvious that it actually has to be said. Which is that you are placed as human beings. You are placed at a specific time in a specific place. And in a specific place where God has placed you by his will, he has placed you also amongst a certain people. And when he places you amongst those people in that specific place, it's so that living out those realities relationally and in that place that it would point you and conform you to and shape you in the image of Christ Jesus. And this is why I believe it's not just a throwaway phrase. If you look at Paul's letters, he begins all of them with some kind of like this formula to the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, in Christ at Philippi, in Christ at Corinth, in Christ at Rome, in Christ at a place. He's saying you are in Christ. The two fundamental realities about you is that you are now in Christ, but God has placed you in a specific place. And what he's saying is those two realities are so foundational to how God will shape you. He will form you. And you're called to be intentional with the people and that place. To be committed. And that's God's primary means for shaping you into the image of Christ. Now, some of this right now when you're listening, you're going, that sounds so basic. Of course God's placed me as with people. I can't, some of you are like, I can't avoid people. I'm trying all the time, right? And of course I'm in a place. I'm not just like Casper floating through the air, right? But here's the thing. While in the ancient world, this was an inescapable reality, but in the modern world, it no longer, it is an inescapable reality. See, here's what I mean. The problem is we no longer have to commit to these two contexts. We can avoid them as modern people. We can move on from people. We can move on from places like that. We can silence them. We can block them, literally. We can mute them. Because the church in the first century, these were unavoidable realities. First, you, you, you only had one church in town. You don't see Paul writing to like, here, uh, to the, the Colossians at First Baptist, right? The Colossians at, you know, the Assemblies of God Church. And then the, the Colossian letter to the, the, the I don't know, the, the hip Baptist church versus the, you know, weird Baptist church, right? Right? Paul writes to one church. Because the way they understood themselves was that there was, there was one body of Christ in a city. And here's the thing. It was unavoidable. You only had so many believers around and you had to do life with one another. And in spite of your differences or all of your falling outs with one another, it was unavoidable. You had to work those things out. 
When Paul says who you are in Christ, can you imagine that coming to a church and them looking around at one another and being like, yeah, I'm in Christ, but I don't know about, you know, Brother Joe over there, right? They're constantly having to figure out what does it really mean to be in Christ? They're constantly dependent upon one another in their lives. They can't escape one another. And they have to work things out with one another. It's an inescapable reality. The second thing was they couldn't just pick up and move. One of the realities, they, were stu- they had to be committed to a specific place, which meant they had to be committed to the economic, racial, social, political, e- educational, civic, and religious realities of that place. You couldn't even in the first century, let's say you're a blacksmith. You, if that was a family reality. You couldn't even just go to the next town and be like, uh, I have this trade. It's called blacksmithing, and I fix things. And they're like, yeah, we have a family here who does that. Get out of town, right? Like you couldn't just move around. That was incredibly rare in the ancient world. You were in a place, and here's the thing. God would place you there, and your mindset would be, I have to work and cultivate for the good of this place. When Jesus taught them to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, you're thinking about a city that you will be planted in and rooted in for a very long time. And you're thinking, Lord, how will your kingdom come on earth and in Como as it is in heaven? Where has God placed me? Where is my mission field? What am I called? Where am I called to cultivate for the kingdom, the kingdom of God? So you had a people and a place, two contexts by the, will that sh- by the will of God that shaped you. Fundamentally. Inescapable. There was a certain to use Marilyn Robinson, the novelist Marilyn Robinson. She has a book called The Givenness of Things. They were given. Now, I'm not saying, here's the thing, just so you, it's clear. I'm not, like, I'm not saying up here, like, man, I really wish we could go back to that way of life, right? I grew up, I said I grew up in Ohio, and I lived in California, and now I'm here, right? Like, there, there are certain realities in our world. But what I am drawing out is that in the early church, you didn't have to choose to be committed. You were committed in virtue of being born somewhere, and when you were born again in Christ, that was your reality. What I am saying is that in the modern world, we have to choose to be intentional and to commit to a people and to a place. And this is why church membership actually becomes incredibly important. Because it forces us not to just have some vague idea or sentiment that I'm committed, but to actually do it. Now, what I want to touch on is why, why, we'll come back to that church membership. Why, how, why and how we avoid commitment? Why is it as modern people, this is something that's so actually very foreign to us. Probably actually, as I'm talking about this, some of you are kind of chafing under it. You're like, this just doesn't quite, like, it doesn't feel like kind of how we live as modern people. It's because it isn't. It's completely opposite of how we live as modern people. Uh, The first thing is because first, as modern people, it's very easy to avoid commitments to a people or a place. Now, what I want to do is first I want to show how we got here and then... uh, the result. So how did we get here and why do we avoid commitment and then the results? So I'm going to get a little bit academic here, but I think you'll all find that it's inc- incredibly helpful in putting a, a, a thumb or a finger, a f- what's the word? Like a pulse, right? Whatever that is. 
help you feel what's going on in the world around you. So why? Uh, in the first century, individuals would largely define themselves by the place where the, the people and the realities around them. The people around them, the, the geographical place where they were. But today we define ourselves by avoiding these realities. We actually define our sense of self and get our identity by actually avoiding and moving away from those realities, actually not being constrained to those realities, not being conformed to those realities. There's a, a Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, he says this, the understanding of life which emerges that each of us has his, her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with the model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. In other words, the modern, as, as modern people, we, act, we, just, we define ourselves not by conforming to the realities we're born into or the people or place where we are, but we usually are taught to find our sense of self by avoiding those realities. Now, the, sense, the question is, how do we get here? How do we go from the first century where actually we would understand ourselves in terms of those realities around us and conforming ourselves to them to modern day where now we understand ourselves by avoiding those commitments? There's a uh, well-known 20th century sociologist named Philip Rife. And he has these four stages that I think in history how man has understood himself formed his identity, and I think we have, there we go, yep, we do have a slide. And, and these were, uh, you know, they're kind of roundabout ways of thinking about throughout history, but he says, first, in the ancient world, these first three capture the old way of understanding ourselves. And there was this time where it was essentially what he called political man, time of the ancient Greece, the ancient world. That man kind of defined himself by conforming to the political needs and realities of the world around him, by partaking in civic engagement of how to make a better world, things like that but he would conform to those realities that were given to him. And eventually we have religious man. This is a really interesting thing because in the Middle Ages, all of society would be actually oriented around the religious feasts and festivals and masses. If you've ever heard of the annual calendar, that's when the, this is when it began. And so what, what happened is you build your entire life and the rhythms of your life and your family and everything you did around the religious realities that the, that the church was giving you. And so that, that would deeply shape your identity because you're conforming to those things. And then next you have economic man. Economic man is in the industrial age and now man starts to think of himself based upon how he is able to engage in business and, and economic practices in, in the industrial age. So he primarily thinks of himself as somebody who's developing a product and selling that product or a, a wage earner. But then something happens. What Rife calls modern man the psychological man. He said that man somewhere around the turn of the 20th century began to himself not by being conformed to the things around him, but instead by actually conforming the things around him, believing the things around him were to conform to him or her. And so and what the, humankind, instead of receiving, this is what it means to pursue the true and the good and the beautiful. This is what it means to be a human being. Instead, what they would do is think to themselves, what is it to be a good human being? What gives me a sense of how around them was demanded to conform to that new standard that they've created.
The result is that the relationships between churches, schools, all those, you could say, institutions, the idea became that they should conform to our desires. But they don't exist to shape me. And in fact, anything in my life that would actually shape me must be fought against, avoided. Nothing can make demands upon me. I make demands upon it. See, why do we avoid commitment? And here's, man, this part that I just unpacked could be an hour. The reason why this is so important to grasp is because the way that we as modern people understand our sense of self and identity is an experiment. It's new. But it's a default. And even as you might be saying, well, we're Christians, we think differently, right? In the culture around. We, we all drink from the same cultural waters. Let's be honest with ourselves. We're all formed by the same cultural waters. And what the culture tells us is that the way you define yourself is you come up with your vision of who you are and your sense of self, and then you go into the world and you make demands upon everything else around you, the people around you, the institutions around you, and whatnot, and they become not formative places that shape you, but instead they become places where you can perform. And they exist as a platform to be used. So why do we avoid commitment? Because as modern people, we believe we can define ourselves apart from commitments. But the problem is avoiding commitment doesn't give us a sense of self, actually. Actually, what it ends up doing is it ends up hollowing us out. It actually makes us feel empty at the end. Uh, one of the, so that was the why, the how we got here, the result. One of the things that's interesting over the last 20, 30 years is psychologists, sociologists, historians, philosophers are doing a ton of work on these areas and saying, why in the modern world, if we can be free from all these constraints and we can pursue whatever we want, move wherever we want, be in relationships with whoever we want, be free from all constraints, why is it that we're not finding what we're looking for? First on place, I remember reading this, and this is a little bit of a long quote, so stick with me. But it can't exist without actually thinking of a place where God has placed us. There is an ordinary but disquieting phenomenon, the translation of place into space. The transformation of a setting that had once been charged with human meaning into one from which the meaning has departed. Something empty and inert, mere space. We have all experienced this, some of us many times. Think of the strange emotion we feel when we are moving out of this place where we have been living and we finish cleaning all of our belongings out of our apartment or the house or the dorm room and we look back at it one last time to see a space that used to be at the center of our world, reduced to nothing but bare walls and bare floors. Even when there are a few remaining signs of our time there, faded walls pop-marked with nail holes, scuffs in the floor, spots on the carpet. They serve only to render the moment more poignant, since we know that these small injuries to the property will soon be painted over and tidied up, so that in the fullness of time there will be no trace left of us in that spot. 
One should not be too melodramatic about this. Such changes and transitions, however painful they may be sometimes, are part of a healthy and dynamic human existence. What is different now is not that they happen, but that they have become so pervasive, reflecting a social and psychological fluidity that seems to mark our times. As we have become ever more mobile and more connected and absorbed in a panoply of things that are not immediately present to us, our actual and tangible places seem less and less important to us, more and more transient or provisional or interchangeable or even disposable. The pain of parting becomes less precisely because there is so little reason to invest oneself in place to begin with. Sometimes it almost seems as if we are living like plants without roots, drawing our sustenance not from the earth beneath our feet, but from the satellites that encircle us and the computer clouds that feed and absorb our energies. What's being said there? One of the realities of modern human existence when we fail to commit to a place, as Clay says, we end up not filling a place, but merely navigating through the world, filling space. Space is a life that avoids relational commitments, professional commitments, physical commitments. And what happens is we end up constructing lives that are, you could say, made for living, but not made for life. Place, though, commits to those realities. So what happens when we begin living in space but avoid committing to a place is life becomes unanchored, like floating in the emptiness of space, meaningless. You can almost think of it like living life like a tourist, going from town to town, place to place, relationship to relationship. And as he says, what happens is things become disposable. And the problem is when our place becomes disposable, it affects our relationships as well. The reality is relationships are hard, especially long-term ones. Relationships with people are difficult. But if we become used to just moving through life consuming, then the problem is we'll do the same thing with people. In a fallen world, everything worth having good will at some point hurt. People will fail us. And the more committed we become, the more risk we take of being hurt. And so everything in us wants to push back against it. Everything in us, especially if we live in a time where it's just moving from space to space to space then people become just kind of part of that space that we just move on from. And so if something gets difficult, then we just move on beyond it. And here's the thing, because what we're trying to do deep down is avoid any of that pain. Avoid the pain that comes with vulnerability. But then the problem is we never truly actually learn to love. There's a great line by C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves. He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, 
it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. See, what Lewis is saying there is that oftentimes we live our lives in the modern world to avoid relationships, trying to avoid those people because there's vulnerability there, there's pain that can happen there. And so we go through our lives and over time what happens is we begin to just try to seal off all people, surround ourselves with little luxuries as we move from space to space to space, from neighborhood to neighborhood, city to city, career to career, job to job, relationship to relationship, hookup to hookup. All in a search of finding ourselves. And what he says is if you live that way, what will happen is your heart will not become free. You won't actually find is that your heart will end up being six feet under. Sealed off from life. It is precisely in rooting ourselves and committing to a place and a people that God has designed us become truly alive, to be shaped into the image of Christ. And that is what it means to truly find ourselves. So lastly, let's look at that, the secret to finding your true self. You know, one of the, the deep ironies of the fact that when I gave that illustration at the beginning, it's something that's happening all throughout the church right now is the question of why should we actually be in a local church? And the, the deep irony is that we're the religion that has a God who came incarnate to a people in a place. I mean, you can imagine Jesus of all people, right? Jesus of all people had the excuse not to come to a people in a place, right? You can imagine, like, sometimes I imagine, like, in the Godhead, there's sin, right? The Father and the Spirit are up there. Like, man, it's pretty bad down there. The Spirit's like, it is bad. They're like, Oof, we should do something about this. Like, hey, uh, hey, Jesus, right? Jesus like, I'm not going down there. Jesus had every reason in the world not to come down, but he did. He came to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. Why? And even not only that, he did it for the joy set before him, Colossians says, not begrudgingly. Why? Well, it goes back to some fundamental truths as well. See, God created a world that has a place of delight, a place that mirrors his glory, a place that mirrors his love for himself, a place of worship, a place that was meant to be cultivated for that glory, to be expanded, to be built upon. And then God created a people. He created humans with a specific capacity to know him, to join in that delight, to join in that love, to join in that reality. The only thing is because of sin, because we turn it in on ourselves and we started to try to define ourselves apart from God, to push all those things out. And what it led to was that isolation. It led to just becoming that person that's just the size of a, of a coffin in our hearts. But what does God do? God searches man out. And he did it in Christ. Christ came into the world to save God's people. And then he came into the world in order to save God's people and then to send them out into that place where he has them. 
in order that they might not just go into that place, but so that their hearts would be made new, that they become fully alive, that they would now delight in him and they would have joy in him and they have love for other people that they experience with others tangibly and they grow in that love through his grace. But you have to have the same people over time to grow in that grace. And then also then they're sent to a specific place to cultivate that glory, a place that's just become a space in the world, empty of any meaning. And he says, go into that place and cultivate it for my glory. See, what Jesus calls us to, the way to be conformed into the image of Christ, is to follow in the way of Christ. He came into a people who did not deserve his grace. He came into a, a place that had just become a mere space that was just being filled with meaninglessness. And he says, I'm making you new. And I'm sending you there for a specific purpose. And he says, commit to those people where I place you. Commit to that place. You won't find yourself by isolating or wandering through the world. Commit to one another as I've committed to you. Commit to cultivating my glory in the place where you are with one another. Look around and see where there's pain, where there's need where Christ is not known. Don't think of living in the city just like traveling through like a tourist. See, the secret to finding your true self is to find your true self in Christ with a people in a place. It shapes you. Because as you do so in your relationships, you'll find joy in the delight, grace, and the difficulty. In a place, you'll link souls and arms, filling empty space by cultivating grace and peace. Now, I know you may be thinking, I thought this was a sermon about church membership, right? It is. The reason why church membership exists is because at some point you have to choose to commit. At some point, you have to choose to commit and say, this is my people, this is my place. So that when the going gets tough, your default would be to lean in and be shaped. This is why Paul then gives one of the most beautiful passages a few verses later in Colossians. When he's speaking to the church, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think every one of us wants what that passage describes. I mean, I don't think anyone reads that passage and you're just like, nah, no thank you, right? I don't need that kind of rich community in my life. But the way we get it is only through commitment. A few weeks ago, I shared... I share this story of how uh, somebody asked Michelangelo how he sculpted the David. Like, how did you sculpt the David, Michelangelo? And he said it was simple. 
I chiseled away everything that wasn't David. See, one of the realities that we get to do when we're committed to one another is that when we commit to one another over time, the only way we can stay in relationship, stay committed, staying in a place is if we choose to see the end reality of what God is promising. That we choose to look around this room and this becomes a place where when we see one another, we see that like the future, that David, that thing that needs to be chipped away, that you're not there yet, but it's the place where God is going to take you. where he's going to conform you to his image. But the reality is that we, every week, every day, in one another's lives, if we're committed over time, we get to chip away gently and slowly with psalms and hymns and encouraging words and admonition and being there for one another. If you want to know meaning and purpose, I'm telling you, be a member of a local church and lean into that reality. God has made you new in Christ for Christ. And it takes commitment to real people in a real place. But through that commitment, choosing to become a member, God will conform you to the image of his son. That is the path to finding who you were made to be. And that is why church membership is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, for the call to commitment. Lord, in a day and age in which commitment is so easy to avoid. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see the beauty in committing to one another. Lord, it's so easy today to just move on from people, to move on from a place. Lord, to move on from anything that would conform us, anything that would hold us in place, that would refine us. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would make us a people of commitment. That, Lord, we would see in Christ that you've committed yourself to us. That you made the ultimate commitment in laying your life down so that we might be made new. And so, Lord, would we follow in your footsteps, Lord, committing to a people in a place for your glory and so that we might be transformed into the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.